people in the California listening to this and considering a move to Seattle on behalf of Seattleites everywhere, I'm contractually obligated to say that it's not nice here and it's cloudy all the time and it's it's miserable and you will hate it here. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data and housing journalist with Cal Matters. I'm Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times, and congrats on the end you just added there. I did. Yeah. I, it is going to be changed on the website. They're Fantastic. adding it. I know. Yeah. Um, now there is one and a half housing reporters in in Sacramento. It's a growth industry. Um, today on the podcast, we're going to be looking at one of my favorite cities, Seattle, um, a city whose housing crisis is often compared to um, what we've been seeing in California, especially the Bay Area. We will be talking with with uh, Mike Rosenberg, uh, reporter at the Seattle Times. And if you don't know who he is, you should and you will. Um, he, in my view, is the uh, best person to follow uh, on housing issues in the in the country. It's a great uh, Twitter feed at uh, by Rosenberg. So if you're not following him already, you should definitely do that now. And we'll be asking him um, how things are similar and different between Seattle and primarily the Bay Area. First, some um, shameless self-promotion. Liam, where are we going to be in, what, a week, two weeks? When's this thing? A little less than a week. Next week? Next week, yeah. yeah. I yeah. pay attention to my calendar a right. lot. So uh, there's going to be a really interesting uh, forum at ULI in San Francisco. The Urban Land Student San Francisco is sponsoring, and I'm moderating, and Matt's going to be helping me um, talk about rent control. So we have uh, proponents, opponents, um, uh, some academic folks on the panel as well. And so looking forward to an interesting uh, debate in San Francisco on July 31st, and uh, hopefully you can make it. And it will be at the Google Open Space in San Francisco? That sounds right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that is. At least I know where it is. I may not know <laughs> when it is. Some other shameless self-promotion, I highly suggest that you check out a story that um, I did looking at how high housing costs are impacting refugees, primarily from Iraq and Afghanistan, who have resettled here in California. Um, kind of reminds you of what the real human cost is of our housing crisis here. It was an excellent piece. Uh, I highly recommend it. And I think it, it certainly added added some value to, um, you know, I think a lot of times when we talk about California as being a welcoming place for immigrants and refugees, we don't really understand um, in order for folks to live here, they actually have to be able to <laughs> afford to live here. Uh, and some of the same housing issues that uh, many folks face, uh, uh, refugees and other, other folks trying to come here, um, face them two or threefold. Yeah. I mean, it was mind-blowing spending time with this particular Afghan refugee um, who peed in a bottle in the back of his Uber to save on the cost of paying for something when going to the bathroom in San Francisco. Um, That's what they call in the biz a telling detail. First, the most popular segment in all of California housing radio. Yes, it is the avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the absurd slash whimsical slash hopefully humorous um, parts of California's housing crisis that those stories that you read that you're like, this is really absurd. Yes, and uh, today we have a we have a, a blast from the past. Um, a a an, an avocado that has been ripe for some time, perhaps the ripest of all the avocados that we've ever dealt with uh, yes. on this podcast. And uh, way to extend I, the metaphor. I got to tell you, um, Matt scored a really incredible exclusive interview. <laughs> The avocado of the Fortnite could well have been titled the zucchini of the Fortnite. Um, so I'm doing a story that is a 
profile, basically a profile of the Yimbies for a national, the Yes in My Backyard movement uh, for a national audience for NPR, which wow. it'll air in a couple weeks. And as part of that, I am using the zucchini anecdote as the lead anecdote to the story. And the zucchini anecdote, let, let's have you, let's have you describe it from your perspective. So there was a meeting um, in Berkeley a uh, year and a half ago, roughly. Yep. Roughly. Where um, there was a, a discussion about building a reasonably small development, uh, but more than one story uh, in, in Berkeley. And there was a neighbor of this development came up and, and had some concerns about um, about this development and came with a prop. Right. And uh, this this woman um, brandished. There brand, you go. Brandished her zucchini and said, um, "I brought a zucchini because I love to garden, and in order to garden, you need sunlight. Um, the report says that the shadow impacts have been made non-detrimental because the shadows are cast on my yard. But the zucchini exists because I don't have a big two-story house next door to me." And it immediately became a thing on Twitter, as anyone who was watching it knew it, it would become. Um, a symbol, a, an, an epigram, a, uh, a moment, a um, – could just keep going, but I'm going to stop uh, – of the, the housing crisis. Yes. Uh, do you have more synonyms? No, I mean, like I mean, that I, was an I, impressive. I, 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 like once I hit epigram, I was like, I epigram, think I, yeah. I think I'm out of. Yeah. I think I'm out. Anyway. Um, I talked to the zucchini lady, Liam. Wow. Mm-hmm. How'd that go? She was absolutely delightful. I knocked on her door. Like like a cold a cold call. Just, just I was interviewing somebody else in the neighborhood about the zucchini house, and he was basically saying like, you so should, should go to talk. You to should the... really just go. So talk did to you her. come with like produce? Like did you come with gifts? No, I did. I did not. She's a third grade, so her oh, name wait, is... Wait, wait, before, Go we, ahead. before we get there, did you say, hello, my name is Matt, I want to talk to the zucchini lady? Is that how this sort of happened? I forget or? how exactly I introduced myself, but I the development's right next door, right? Yes. So, and there's still, it's still the um, single-story house yes. that's there. They haven't built... Um, the plan was to build two two new houses on this lot that only had one. I see. Um, and so I asked, you know... I want to talk about the development next door. Are you um, the something along the lines of Are you the person that brandished the zucchini? And then from so I was talking to uh, her wife, yeah. and then from the back I hear, Oh, that's me!" <laughs> <laughs> and she comes out. Her name is Scout Shays. She is a third grade teacher in Oakland Public Schools. Okay. She was incredibly nice. Yes. So this story, because of its kind of symbolic value, had been picked up by. Uh, Mother Jones uh-huh. wrote about it. Yeah. Um, Salon wrote about it. Usually, just as like an anecdote to kind of segue well, into California's because it's, pro- it's perfect. Perfect anecdote. It is yes. the perfect anecdote. Yes. No one from the media had contacted her. No. I was the first reporter. No. Yes. Really? Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. You hadn't. Just throwing <laughs> that out there. Um, although you had tweeted about it several times. Wow. Just made throwing, fun of it on this very podcast. Throwing the shame at me. Yeah. So anyway, she gave me a tour of her garden. This is this the is spot where the zucchini work. was. It's cucumbers this year. Okay. <laughs> I have tomatoes, um, garlic. It's a nice garden. No more zucchinis there in the backyard. So have they, is it, is it has it happened? Are they gone now? As well, well the, <laughs> not because of the development. Oh, yeah, okay. She's, yeah, yeah, I was. She's growing was, cucumbers you, now. So you heard my concern about the, the fate 
yes. of, the, of the future zucchini progeny. Yes. yes. Um, so, you know, I asked her, you know, do you regret bringing the zucchini? And her answer was yes. She she does. Um, she knows how kind of petty and trivial it came off as an objection to new housing. But the part of the story that doesn't get told is that she and a lot of other people were really there because they felt that the tenants of the house next door who were renters had been misled by the developer mm. um, and were being were going to be unfairly kicked out of their that house in order to make way for these two new developments. And that's something the some Yimby groups later became aware of, and that's why they didn't advocate on behalf of this project, hmm. um, even though um, it certainly became a buzzword for them and for others yes. on Twitter. Wow. There is more depth to the story. There always is. Um, I also asked, like, how has becoming a walking Twitter symbol affected your life? Um, and she said, you know, really, you know, not that much. She's not on Twitter, thank God. <laughs> Um, but she did read about it in one place. I'm going to play that cut for you right now. I saw it on Nextdoor. Oh, God. Yeah, the, the headline was, Berkeley is a national laughing stock. And I was like, oh, I, I wonder if I'm in that. And I was. <laughs> Nextdoor. Wow. Yes, yeah, Nextdoor. That's the, man, that's the that's the pits to continue the, the fruit oh, metaphor. Good Lord. <laughs> Um, anyway, the takeaways from this particular avocado of the Fortnite, um, which is, is don't be mean to anybody because there's actually they actually have, have uh, a more, more interesting backstory than we know. Is that a I would I wouldn't say don't be mean to anybody, okay. but what I would say is one, good job media, right? <laughs> no one had talked to this woman until I showed up a year later. Yeah, like nobody, mm-hmm. and that's not like. I know that probably comes off as like self-congratulatory, but I'm I'm at right. fault with that too. Sure, sure, sure. It's, we all are. It's yes. amazing. Yes. That mm-hmm. no one had talked to this woman to get her side of the story. Right. And then two, I think it points to the value of a symbolic anecdote versus the depth of a story that is likely behind that. Yes. Um, and the tone that certain elements within housing Twitter um, will take with some of these more symbolic nimbies, right? Yeah. Well, I, and. Uh, this is a longer discussion that I don't know that w- whether will is worth having now. Um, but like I, I generally when my when I'm my reporting and in my um, uh, sort of writing or talking about things on, on Twitter or on interviews and things like that, I really tend not to try to express too much of an opinion on individual projects for a variety of reasons. Mm. And the, the 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 largest reason for that is I don't the I details mean, of the, the project. The details of the project. Yeah, agreed. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. You know, I mean, it might sound crazy to talk about a, a, a like a curb cut for a four unit of affordable housing project and how that's holding things up. But I don't. I mean, it's it, without really studying the ins and outs of the project, it's tough for me to say that, um, exactly. that this particular project is good or bad. I can certainly tell you that there's a broader need in a region or in a community or a neighborhood for for housing or for low income housing or for whatever. Or the stats say that there's no low income housing here, and that's perhaps a problem. But like, it's really tough to say that a particular project is good or bad for a lot of reasons. All right, we're gonna go through a few other things kind of before we get to the discussion of how Seattle may or may not be a good model. Next month is a pretty big month here in Sacramento. Yeah, so right now it's the legislature uh, in California, um, where we are based, uh, is on break. It's summer recess, and it is in part because it's uh, hot. It is warm 
in Sacramento. Um, and so legislators don't have to deal with this, but Matt and I and others who work here do. Uh, but they will come back in August when it will be maybe a little bit less hot um, and deal with the last month. It's equally hot in August. Nah, it's, it's a little less hot. It's not, no, it is, it is arguably more hot in August. Nah, it's impossible to be more hot than it is now. <laughs> All right, continue. <laughs> so, uh, so August is the last month of the, of the legislative year. So, um, this is really important because this is when all the big deals get baked. Uh, and so, last year, this was August was the the month where the big housing package uh, was passed. And uh, and so this yep. year, uh, there's less um, to be dealt with, but we'll be talking through uh, some of the major bills that are still left on the on the table that will live or die at the end of the month. Um, and maybe before we go through each of these bills, let's let's talk briefly about how important this legislation is compared to maybe what um, some of the legislation we saw earlier in the year that failed to make it to this point, and then last year's housing package, of course. Totally, yeah. So the, the, the context for this is, um, you know, last year was a, a lot of emphasis and, and discussion about housing issues. Uh, what was passed, the 15 bills, um, were ultimately sort of seen as the first time the state in many years has taken a long look at trying to do something about the state's uh, housing affordability problems. And typically when a big thing happens, or, or, or at least a big political thing happens, which is what I would characterize it happened. Uh, last year, more political than practical in terms of an, uh, um, in terms of an impact. There's time that's given. Uh, it doesn't happen again, right? It's very rare that you'll have a a similar uh, hard political push on an issue year after year after year mm-hmm. after year. And so there was a lot of thought uh, given that also because we were enter- entering an election year, which this year is, that there was not going to be much action on on housing in the legislature this year. And and I think that that's wrong, despite the fact that we don't have a ton of high profile bills left. Um, now for the end of the year, there was a lot of high-profile, interesting action that at occurred on on housing um, in the legislature at the beginning of the year. Um, there was a uh, a push to um, uh, eliminate the law that prohibits uh, cities and counties from um, expanding rent control, and so that went down in a committee hearing. And you'll now, of course, be voting on that uh, in November. Uh, that issue in November, an initiative, mm-hmm. and that's Proposition Ten. Of repealing the Costa Hawkins um, uh, rent control law, um, and then also uh, sort of the big national story that came out of the legislature on housing earlier in the year was on Senate Bill 827, which was the the bill that would have allowed for uh, higher density zoning around uh, transit locations. That was a huge debate, um, and that bill failed uh, in the in in the springtime. Um, and then also, you know. Uh, uh, so- so just a couple other kind of bills that probably didn't attract as much attention as right. Casa Hawkins repeal or SB 27. But uh, certainly in kind of California housing circles, people had their eyes on um, Chu's bill to basically kind of resuscitate redevelopment. It's only been David Chu, yeah, from San Francisco. Cisco, uh-huh. um, which uh, failed to pass the Appropriations Committee last month. Um, and then also a suite of tenants' rights bills that died a uh, fairly ignominious death. Um, of which only one, maybe one or two, are remaining. Right. So there, yeah, yeah. So and what's interesting is that you know, particularly because we're we're again in an election year, a lot of this stuff in some ways was more, I think, more symbolic and positioning. And I don't want to you know detract say that that's bad, right? But that's sort of the way things work. You you want to yeah. tee up um, something that's going to be on the ballot, which I think is what the no one really expected the rent control um, uh, issue to pass at the le- legislative level. It was really uh, uh, in some ways a, a preview of what the fight was going to be at the ballot, right? Um, and I think in some ways, given that we have an open 
open open gubernatorial race, new governor, uh, new open seat for governor, new governor coming in um, uh, next year. A lot of the lawmakers, with I think particularly with respect to the redevelopment bill, wanted to kind of get their stamp on some of these issues mm-hmm. prior to the new governor coming in, who um, may well want to do something in in this area. Um, okay, so with that being said, um, some of these bills are still important. Let's let's start with. Uh, Yet again, a bill from uh, Senator Scott Weiner of San Francisco, not SB 827, but SB 828. 828, right. So... This bill, and we've talked a lot about um, housing goals. So the state, um, every eight years, tells cities and counties uh, via their sort of regional governments how many homes they're supposed to build to uh, allow for people of all incomes to, to live in the community to keep pace with population growth. What SBA 28 does is it changes the formula for how those housing goals are distributed in order to require more zoning for housing, especially in areas where housing hasn't been produced before and where there's been strong demand. Now, um, this used to be a much more robust uh, version. Um, Senator Wiener originally wanted cities and counties to have to zone for 200% of their housing need rather than 100% of their their need, which is what the bill stands at today. That being said, the senator and his allies assure me uh, that the that the that the language that they have uh, written in the bill now would um, would uh, increase or robustly increase uh, how much, particularly in these sort of high demand areas, how much how, how much land has has to be zoned. The so 828, I would argue, is probably the most noteworthy of the bills that we are kind of going through. Sure. Let's move to a bill from Miguel Santiago, um, a Los Angeles area legislator, AB 686. So this bill, um, this was a bill that he used to try to pass for the last couple of years. A lot of emphasis in California on doing things to combat the Trump administration. This does that on the housing space. So uh, President Obama um, had a plan in place uh, at the federal level to uh, uh, sort of push cities and counties and regions to desegregate. Uh, and uh, uh, this uh, bill puts those Obama-era anti-housing segregation rules into state law. So cities in their housing plans would have to um, show how they're uh, uh, advancing fair housing goals. Let's now move to AB 2890, um, which is a bill by Phil Ting uh, dealing with accessory dwelling units. Or casitas, as the preferred term is. Um, these are these back little housing units in your backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of emphasis among the legislature in making it easier for uh, people to be able to build these. That's what uh, Selimin Ting's bill does. So um, it, requires, it would require cities to permit them faster, in some cases no more than two months, and would authorize the, the attorney general uh, to go after cities that have rules that are stricter than what the state law uh, says you have to do. And we've seen a dramatic increase, um, primarily as a result of legislation that uh, the Capitol passed two years ago. Two years ago. ago. Yeah, two years ago um, in ADU permits and and I believe the construction of ADUs as well, um, especially in Southern California. That's right. There's some debate over uh, how much of this is is simply legalizing casitas that were already there Mm -hmm. versus new casita construction, Um, but uh, a lot more than there used to be. People put a lot of faith in ADUs as a potential solution to the housing crisis. I don't know why we're talking past each other and you keep saying ADU and I keep saying the preferred term. But, uh, you know, who prefers that term? Uh, me and millions They're... of other millions of other followers on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Your following's at a million now. Uh, You're at Kardashian. Uh, level. So I'd say round. That's a rounding error. It's a rounding <laughs> error. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, now let's move to a couple bills from San Francisco legislator David Chu. This is uh, Assembly Bill uh, 2923. And what's interesting, so this, this allows um, or requires uh, on land that BART owns, the Bay Area Apertrain System, so their transit agency there, uh, it, it to have higher density um, uh, around their transit stops. Um, and the key innovation here, I think it's less interesting to me um, from a statewide perspective that th- there would be sort of more density required on uh, transit areas uh, or, or lands near transit and more the idea that if cities don't uh, come sort of step up uh, uh, and and approve these sorts of plans, then the land use authority or the approval authority would in, in effect transfer to the transit agency. And so we talk all the time about local control here and how that's a big issue um, on, on housing decisions. This would uh, essentially put the, the control in the hands of a transit agency, which, which to my knowledge, it would be the first time that that, that would happen uh, in any robust way. And so to me, that sort of shift away from a local control perspective is interesting. Uh, and just practically speaking, they're really talking about converting parking lots yeah. around BART stations throughout the Bay Area to housing. Mm-hmm. Um all right, and uh, you sure, the last one? sure, I'll t- I'll take this last one. So this is AB twenty three forty three. This again, bill by legislator David Chu, that would basically extend the time that tenants have to respond to an eviction notice. The most notable thing about this bill is the fact that it's pretty much the only one remaining from a handful of tenants' bills that, as I mentioned earlier, died in the legislature. And uh, and and you know, as we talked earlier, there there's you know these committee hearings. We we talked about the role of the fiscal appropriations committee. Uh, if I'm if I may be correct, I believe all of these bills will have to go through that on the other house. Yes. Um, and so there you'll you'll see these bills in the next you know few weeks will will live or die, uh, and they'll be held up in sort of the regular committee process that we've seen uh, <coughs> that we've talked a lot about about how things work up here. That concludes our look at what the legislature will be doing on housing in August, and which will be a year of us doing this podcast. Now to our number of the fortnight. The second most popular segment in California housing uh, podcasting. Uh, the number of the fortnight this week is 65. I really like this number. What is it? What's it, what's it about? That is the number of tower cranes that are currently in operation Ooh. in Seattle. Ooh. And to give you, to put that number in context. Please do. Which is my job here. Yes. They have more of these types of cranes in Seattle right now than any other city in the country, hmm. including uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles here in California. Wow. And that is a indicator, um, perhaps not a perfect one. Um, that they build stuff. That they build stuff. And they build a lot more stuff than we build in many cities in California. And do you want to get into some of the specifics on that, Liam? Yeah. So, um, you know, we've seen uh, that from let's do a comparison with the, the San Francisco. So 2010 and 2016, we got... 15,730 uh, new homes are uh, dwelling units, if you want to be Matt's level of specificity uh, 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 about what we call these things um, in San Francisco. But in Seattle, in Seattle, uh, we had 32,000 being built over that time period. So nearly, well, more than double what was built in uh, the Bay Area. And you could, ar- or rather in San Francisco, and you could argue that the, the demand uh, may well be higher, have been higher in San Francisco than it was in Seattle, though certainly. Um, big, big demand in Seattle, too. And Seattle often gets compared to specifically the Bay Area and specifically San Francisco, you know, white people wearing North Face and Columbia jackets everywhere. Right. Seattle, Columbia, Bay Area, North Face, just FYI. 
Thanks for that. Just clarifying that. Yeah. So, um, yes, as Matt note, noted, it's uh, cloudy and foggy in both places. Um, but but also, uh, also um, you know, big tech uh, in, uh, uh, impact. Mm-hmm. Um, Seattle, of course, is the home to Amazon, which is a uh, giant in all sorts of industries. And, of, and Microsoft. Yes, and Microsoft as well. Um, you know, coastal community. Um, what else we got? Very progressive electorate. Yes. Strong environmental kind of ethos mm-hmm. in, in both areas. Mm-hmm. I kind of have a, a personal connection, Liam, to Seattle. Um, I actually lived there for a year while I served as a AmeriCorps in 2009. And they don't pay you anything in AmeriCorps. They, pay, they, they put you on food stamps. You make less than minimum wage. Really? Yeah. Huh. But- in Seattle, this was 2009. I was paying uh, $750 a month for a nice one-bedroom apartment close to some of the nicer parts of the the city mm-hmm. in this neighborhood called the Central District, and I was actually splitting it at the time. Wow! Um, so I was paying $375 a month for rent, and actually was able to save more while I was a AmeriCorps work making less than minimum wage in Seattle then. Uh, than I was um, when I worked in the Bay Area. Interesting. Yeah. Um, That was the glory days of 2009. And by glory days, I mean in the midst of a financial crisis where a good portion of the country, including people in Seattle, were suffering immensely. Um, But for Matt Levin, things were fine. Things were were coming up roses (laughs) for me. No longer the case. No. No. In, uh, In neither city. And in fact, there was, you know, there's been a huge... Increase in in home prices and uh, and rents in Seattle, despite their building. Although, um, you know, you you have seen because they've been building a lot more uh, there that some of their um, uh, rents have in fact stabilized. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And and this routinely gets held up as an example of look, Seattle is building a lot more than California is, and look, their rents are starting to at least stabilize. Like mm-hmm. they, they are routinely looked at as an example for what could be done in places like San Francisco. Right. Well, and uh, I'm sure there's a ton of debates about whether that's actually true or not. Yes. Um, you, know, you know, something though to keep in mind, and, and, and Mike gets into this on the um, on our interview, uh, you know, I mean, uh, we could talk about how much better it is in Seattle than the Bay Area in terms of affordability, but it's still not affordable there. No. Uh, and they've seen a lot of dramatic price increases. And so, you know, the the comparison that he said when he, cause he's a former reporter in, in California when he first came there about, hey, you know, at least it's not San Jose. At least it's not San Francisco. That's sort of hollow for someone who wants to live in Seattle and still can't afford it. Exactly. Um, okay. Uh, anything else on the Seattle versus California kind of comparison here? Let's talk to the expert. Sounds great. Let's talk with Mike Rosenberg. We are here with Mike Rosenberg, housing reporter for the Seattle Times and the best follow in all of housing journalism Twitter. No offense, Liam. That's a fact. Mike Rosenberg is the the person we all look up to in this game. (laughs) How are you doing, Mike? I'm excellent. How are you guys? We're great. We're all right. You actually were a reporter um, for the San Jose Mercury News in the Bay Area. You're the perfect person to ask this question to. What is the biggest difference between the housing crisis in uh, Seattle that you cover so well and what we're seeing here in California? 
I think the biggest thing that stands out is just the scale of it all. I mean, both regions seem to have the same general gist going on where people can't afford housing and um, all the other problems associated with that. But even as bad as things have gotten in Seattle, and it has gotten really bad, it still pales in comparison to what the Bay Area is dealing with. So, I mean, pretty much Seattle is about half the cost of San Francisco. I mean, the median price here is about eight hundred and something thousand dollars in San Francisco. It's about one point four million. Um, if you compare overall costs, you know, Bay Area wide to the whole Seattle metro area wide, it, it's sort of that two to one ratio kind of holds up pretty well. And I mean, it's all perspective, obviously. And people in Seattle get paid a little bit less, but even with that factored in, it's just you know, whatever Seattle is dealing with in their housing crisis, it sort of is very small in comparison to what the Bay Area is dealing with. Do you constantly remind people from Seattle that, hey, it's really not that bad. Stop complaining because I've lived in a worse place. Well, it was weird. When I first got here, I would say that, and then people would give me, like, a side eye and be like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like I really don't care about that. Like, it does not... <laughs> right make me feel any better that I can't afford rent, but oh well, if I lived in San Francisco then I really couldn't afford rent. <laughs> I mean, so for the for the people here, it doesn't really matter. I mean, especially because Seattle has grown at the same rate in terms of housing costs as the Bay Area um, over the last several years. So, you know, Bay Area costs have roughly doubled and Seattle they've roughly doubled too. So for people in Seattle it's not necessarily ooh, thank God we're not as bad as the Bay Area, it's, oh, things are much worse than it used to be. So I've sort of stopped using that line because it's pretty, uh, it doesn't exactly have any effect on, on people here, and it's really almost like not relevant unless you've actually moved from one place to the other. And I'm I'm sure it endears you to everyone up there, too. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they love... Uh, they love Californians say, generally. Hey, so. not, yeah, exactly. So, Only me and like three fourths of the rest of the city directly <laughs> came from California. So, 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 Mike, I'm curious what the tenor of the debate is in Seattle compared to what you saw here. I mean, I imagine you know from what I read and what I understand from being in the places that sort of the general fault lines are general are the same. You have neighborhood groups that tend to push back against, um, uh, you know, against uh, against growth, and there's a ton of single family zoning and all these sorts of things that are you know, and 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 as there's a pressure for growth, these things come into come into tension um everywhere it seems but i'm wondering whether the like the level of of argument is the same or whether there are different different uh, different kinds of ways it's handled yeah i think that would be difference number two that would be on my list is that i mean yeah it's the same general gist i mean you have nimbies in the bay area you have nimbies in seattle you have pro-growth people in in both regions too but i think the big thing that separates Seattle from the Bay Area is sort of the level of power that is given to NIMBYs. So my sense in in the Bay Area and other parts of California is that NIMBYs end up with almost complete control over what happens in development because you're able to sue to block projects, as you guys know, and show up to meetings and influence uh, the commissioners and board members that approve or, in many cases, do not approve these projects. And, you know, it's not that crazy to hear of projects that are delayed, you know, five, ten years just going through the planning process. I remember early in my career I covered just a 
a new Safeway in the city of Burlingame, uh, halfway between San Francisco and San Jose, and it was delayed for about 10 to 15 years. Everybody agreed that the Safeway that they had before then was old and need to be replaced, and Safeway wanted to do it. But they started getting mired into this, you know, ooh, what what kind of plant should be at, like, the fourth exit? And what sort of, you know, curb cut should there be? And all of these little details that just got poured over again and again to the point where nobody could ever agree on anything. And the idea that this perfect project could never be built just sort of took hold in the city. And that, that seemed to be sort of... That was, you know, very early in my career, and it sort of became emblematic of what it was like to try to build something, but especially housing in the Bay Area. Whereas in Seattle, you know, yeah, you still have people who are opposed to growth, and you still have uh, a lot of efforts to sort of slow that down. But it's these people who are opposed to growth are not given complete power. There's a balance between what's good for the city as a whole and what's good for the existing residents. And as a result, you've seen Seattle build, you know, twice as much housing every year as San Francisco. And you see neighborhoods being completely transformed while, you know, San Francisco debates whether a laundromat is historic or, mm-hmm. you know, a new project to replace the laundromat is going to be, you know, casting shadows on a, you know, a square block or something like that. Right. So you would attribute that uh, almost, uh, almost entirely to the political atmosphere because there's a lot of debate and things we talk about all the time about how much of these sort of issues are market-driven versus how much of these are, are political or regulatory-driven. And it sounds like you're saying that the political regulatory environment in California is uh, is what you see as being the, the, the primary reason why why growth in Seattle may be at a, at a much higher rate. Yeah, because, I mean, the market realities are the same in both areas. I mean, both places, if you were to open it up, people would build more it's just it's happening in seattle and not in california and those i mean i there are projects here that get approved that would take years to go through the process in san francisco that just sort of get approved with nobody really caring that much here and it just sort of becomes a default mode that development will you know not in all neighborhoods but a lot of times we'll just sort of come up and if it meets the requirements then it'll get approved and it'll get built and that is something that I didn't really see in California and I think you know a good example of that is in Seattle they you know they've been rezoning slowly and trying to encourage more development near transit and that's something that was sort of widely viewed as, you know, being a good thing. And we've seen a couple new light rail stations pop up and you've seen the city rezone areas around those stations and, you know, like single story buildings have been replaced with seven story apartment buildings near the line and also near new uh, and beefed up bus lines. And, you know, the neighborhood I live in in Ballard, it's been completely transformed and it's, um, you saw a similar effort to do that in California, and it became like, oh my God, they're going to war with cities. They're trying to take away uh, power from cities to try to upzone areas near transit, and it was like a complete. You're talking about SB 27, right? And so the you know both sort of efforts were tried in both regions, and in one it was sort of in Seattle it was sort of widely accepted that that's 
good and it was done and people are from what I can tell generally okay with it and California it was like oh my god there's no way we can we're gonna do that so why why do you think that is like why why do you think because you wrote a column I think relatively recently about how like even compared to places like San Francisco and some other cities in California Seattle proportionally is is zoned way more for single-family homes right um, so what, why, even if that's the case, are people kind of more, um, receptive to the idea of upzoning? Yeah, I think it's, it's, you know, it is sort of, I mean, Seattle is roughly two thirds of the residential properties are, are single family zones. So I think that's a big part of it is that people have sort of started to recognize that if we're going to have, you know, be the fastest growing city in America and have headquarters here of, you know, the second biggest company in the world and, you know, several other companies that are here and growing that we can't fit people into single family homes. So that there's been more acceptance of sort of being able to, to, to change a little bit of that. But even then, you know, the vast majority of the single family housing here uh, that was here you know, 10 years ago sort of remains. And so it, it has been uh, a significant amount of development and it's, it's been much more than California, but it, it's not like it's been a complete overhaul of the city. What it's, what it's been is, you know, very targeted overhaul. So some neighborhoods like South Lake Union, where Amazon is based, are resemble nothing that they look like 10 years ago. And other neighborhoods... Like Magnolia, which is all single-family homes, look exactly like they did 10 years ago. So it's it's sort of a mixed thing where, you know, the city as a whole, if you look at it broadly, is changed dramatically. But if you really zoom in, some neighborhoods have completely changed and other neighborhoods are, you know, look like they would in, in the Bay Area in the sense that they haven't changed at all. So can you talk to us a little about – I'm glad you brought up Amazon. Could you talk to us a little about – the um, uh, how that that company is seen as playing a role or not, or connected to the the housing issues that are in Seattle, um, and, and I think particularly it's a good parallel given the, the sort of the role that tech is seen as as um, as playing a role in in uh, in the housing issues, in you know, particularly in the Bay Area. And do they walk around with Amazon T-shirts up there? Is that a thing? <laughs> well, right now it's it's intern season in the summer, so they all get the same intern backpack. Intern season, nice. So yeah. there's this, everybody's walking around with that same backpack. But here it's it's not <laughs> the the t-shirt; it's the badge. So they all have. Uh, do people wear badges outside? Mixed, yeah, like the badge that you use to get into the building. So they're different colors, but it's been nicknamed like blue badgers. So if you see somebody with a blue badge, it's like, oh yeah, it's Amazon. And we're actually the Seattle Times is. Probably like the only yeah. non-Amazon company left in the in the neighborhood where they occupy. So it's sort of like every day I go, you know, to walk, get a cup of coffee or whatever, and it's yeah, it's basically all Amazon employees. But yeah, so the, the so the question about um, how they're perceived as contributing to or as a part of or connected to the the housing issues in the um, in Seattle. Yeah, I mean that's that's a huge part of it. You sort of saw it come to a head with the head tax debate, which became a national story but you know basically the city council here passed a tax on jobs that would uh charge charge 
companies of uh, that were the biggest companies in the city uh, flat fee for for each job that they that they have, and the money would be directed towards homelessness and affordable housing. Um, and it's basically, you know, Amazon being so dominant here would pay like one third of the total cost single-handedly. So it was sort of nicknamed the Amazon tax, and it became this flashpoint in the city because you had this sense that Amazon is coming in and creating a lot of the affordable housing problems because their rise in the city has directly correlated with all of the housing problems that that have happened here. And if you look at the differences in how Seattle has wrote, you know, sort of shot up the charts in housing prices, that's coincided with Amazon because it's, you know, a lot of these cities like Boston or Los Angeles or San Francisco have sort of been expensive as long as people can remember, whereas Seattle, you know, just 10 years ago, it was considered sort of a middle-class city, and now it's up there in the stratosphere of all the high-priced cities, and that's been coinciding with, with Amazon's growth here. So it's they're definitely one of the top, if not the top, uh, sources of blame for uh, for the housing crisis here, but that was the first time they also kind of pushed back and put their mites behind uh, behind this effort because they were really upset about the head tax, and you know the council really quickly actually deleted the uh, or removed the head tax because it was looked like it was going to be headed for the ballot, and they didn't want to deal with that. Um, but it it continues to be an ongoing issue where a lot of people. Blame Amazon and Amazon and their you know fifty thousand employees here push back and it's it's definitely um, a flashpoint. Is the uh, resentment towards Amazon from yeah quote unquote Seattle natives is that worse than the uh, resentment towards let's say Google or Facebook or any of the uh, kind of Bay Area uh, titans of tech? I think it's, it's kind of different because, like, it, just the cultural differences. Like, in the San Francisco, you saw, you know, people throwing rocks at Google buses mm-hmm. and acting out that way. Here, you know, Seattle is a little more passive-aggressive, so they'll, you know, <laughs> get on Reddit forum and start start yelling about Amazon. Um, so you don't really see... I believe they call that the you know, Seattle chill. Am I right? Yeah, mm. it is right, yeah. Um, so... It's there was one woman who was like arrested for throwing a rock at the Amazon spheres at, at one point. I think that was like the the most <laughs> the only like manifestation of of anger that I ever really saw in, in real life. But there was there's not it's it's different. I mean, it's hard to gauge the level of um, animosity here towards Amazon versus Barrier versus you know Google and Apple and all those companies. But it's definitely the overall theme is is pretty similar. So, um, Mike, you mentioned this at the top. Um, you know, I, I feel, I think we both feel that you're really good at um, uh, sort of collecting all the housing information or a lot of housing information that's coming out um, regularly and, and being posting that to your Twitter feed. So that's your Twitter handle is I, I, uh, at by Rosenberg. And I guess I get this question all the time. People ask me, how do you follow what's going on or how do you keep up what's going on or how do you how can I, as a, someone who, who cares about this issue, make sure that I have the latest and most interesting information? So what are your recommendations for that? 
Yeah, I just basically have no life whatsoever and go home and feed my cats and kiss my wife and just go obsessively look at housing information. Um, so you're a cat guy. No, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, it's, it's relevant information. Uh, Eat cereal without milk. Yeah, exactly. Um, this is a very hot debate we had off the air, but uh, it's not. It's better to eat cereal without milk than with it. Um, I'm in team no milk, for the record. Um, but no, I mean, it it requires a lot of just like constant vigilance, you know, Google alerts, following, you know, finding certain people who you like to follow on Twitter and, you know, finding a few websites that you can check. Um, I mean, after a while, it becomes a little repetitive if you can get a, a sense for things and you pick up on what people actually care about. And I think there's this whole housing community on Twitter that is like, it's hard to get a sense for whether that's like those people are real life uh, representatives or whether it's like this one niche area where people really care about it because people, everyone really cares about housing, but I don't know how many people care about it to the point where like, yeah, I want to, you know, dive into the zoning books and look at, you know, the planning commission meetings and things like that. Um, but there's definitely a lot of people who seem to be interested in that. And for those people, I think it's a different uh, audience, a different level of conversation than with just your average person who wants to know, like, the basics. And that's sort right. of more and why it's so what I'm geared yeah. toward mm-hmm. is just, like, the you know more general overview mm-hmm. stuff because you can get lost in the weeds really quickly with some of the some of the, you know, really wonky stuff out there. Um, is is there any role in Washington State for the state to come in and try to alleviate some of the, the cost pressures that are being seen in Seattle and kind of the greater King County area? Because that's a big debate that we've we've had here in California is, well, the cities aren't building enough. Let's get the state um, to force them to build. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a big difference. I think the state here is kind of weird because... I mean, it's sort of similar to California in that there are pockets of blue and red, but here it's it's pretty evenly divided. Like, we uh, just had a turnover in the election where Democrats are now in control of the uh, the state house, and right before that it was Republicans. So it, it's – it's uh, and Seattle is often viewed as, like – you know, when you see those national politicians are like, oh, those San Francisco values, you know, they sort of use them as like a liberal punching bag. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times in the state house, people will use Seattle in that sense. Um, and so the dynamics between the state house and Seattle are, are sort of weird. Um, the biggest thing that's really come up with that is rent control, hmm. which is actually uh, banned statewide here and something that... Some people in Seattle want to enact, but they would need a, you know, a state bill passed to be able to say, okay, you can do that. Um, They're also, the the city had tried to pass an income tax on high earners. That's also banned at the state level. Right, like Washington is no income tax, right? Which is like a crazy crazy difference from California, where like basically our entire budget is an income tax. So right, right. Uh So you keep having all these issues where Seattle wants something and the state says, no, you can't do it. And then they'll go to court and Seattle usually loses because there's the state law already in place and you sort of spin around in circles 
that way. Um, so it's sort of the opposite in the sense that the city wants something from the state, whereas the, I get the sense more in California that the cities sort of want the state to stay out of their business. Um, when I was in Seattle, I lived in the Central District, and when I was there, um, I was renting an apartment for a one-bedroom apartment for seven hundred and fifty dollars a month. Um, which I is it still available? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you. Um, that seems like it's impossible now. Um, but yeah. but that was a neighborhood in Seattle that used to have a lot of African Americans. There's other parts of the Seattle area too that had uh, communities of color that were there for quite a while. Could you compare kind of those communities' voices in Seattle to what you saw in, in the Bay Area? Yeah, I mean, that is pretty similar. I mean, in the Central District, it was about 70% black a few decades ago, um, and now it's about 20% black. And this was Seattle's red line neighborhoods. So this mm-hmm. is where um, African Americans were really the only place they were allowed to buy homes, Um many decades ago and over time you know as Seattle boomed that people started pushing out from the sort of traditionally more expensive neighborhoods and buying up property and developing the central district and communities of color there have been pushed out um, significantly and there have been efforts in some ways to uh, counteract that Uh, there's a sort of unique partnership right now where uh, Africatown, which is a local uh, African-American community organization, is going to be actually like co-owning a a major development there that's affordable housing to try to uh, keep the black community uh, from vanishing even more than it already has in that area. But it, it's, I get the sense that it's fairly similar. I mean, if you look at the numbers in San Francisco about the number of uh, the black population and how that's declined. I mean, it's pretty it's similar right. um, here in Seattle, unfortunately. And it's just sort of, you know, that there are things that happen around the edges, and, but they're sort of drops in the bucket to the overall market reality of, you know, the fact that things are getting so expensive and these communities are being pushed out. And it's, you know, the Pacific Northwest is a lot whiter in general than California. Um, and so that, you know, the dynamics here are a little bit different and it's, uh, but the, the re- results in a lot of ways sort of wind up being pretty similar. So what's the solution? <laughs> <laughs> That's a Cause great Ma- question. Because Mike has it and just hasn't told well, anybody. Well, I mean, yet. he's, you know, again, like, uh, hey, he, Write stuff, read stuff. Mm-hmm. What's, I mean, I have opinions, but I'm curious what, my, <laughs> what Mike's opinions are. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if I was national Zarr. housing Housing Zarr. Zarr. Zarr, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there would have to be more of uh, like a, a look into the levels of housing that were built for prior generations versus level of housing that's being built for young Americans today and, you know, take a large, long, hard look at that and, and see whether we're building enough for, for this new generation and whether this is like a temporary issue that will go away or whether it's just simply, you know, a matter of the population increasing and fewer homes available. So it's becoming this math problem where each generation is going to get worse and worse. And something we don't know 
yet, but every year that goes by, it seems to be getting worse and worse. And I don't know. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of resistance from communities to to building that housing, and with good reason. But I think it's also, you know, where are your kids going to live, where are your grandkids going to live, and that's that's only part of part of the solution. But I think it's probably a lot bigger than a lot bigger part of it than you know the little things that you might be doing along the edges. Should should California cities consider Seattle a model for dealing with the housing crisis? Mm, I don't I don't know. I mean, I think it probably depends on on the city. Like a city like um, Sacramento or San Jose is probably not going to be able to um, replicate some of the things that that Seattle has done and, and a city like San Francisco has already done a lot of the things that Seattle's doing now in terms of dense housing. Um, but I think some of the, and the other thing that's, I think it's important to note is like, it's not like Seattle has solved it with a capital I, you know, it's like they're, they're doing a lot to hold rents down now, but home prices are rising faster here than, anywhere else in the country and I really don't think anything they've done has helped with that. So I mean Seattle has in a lot of ways, you know, been been doing some of the things that California has refused to do, but the results have been so mixed that I don't think, you know, you can hmm. take a field trip up here, look around and say, Ooh, this is the the future I want for California because talk to anybody here in Seattle, they're being priced out. Mm. Homelessness Mm. is skyrocketing. Um, Normal middle-class people have almost zero chance of buying a home in the city. This is not, I don't think, you know, unless you're in such an awful situation like San Francisco, I don't think many people are going to be looking at Seattle as something that they aspire to be in terms of the housing situation. So is that, I mean, in your opinion, is that a symptom of how difficult the problem is, or is that a symptom of things Seattle hasn't done? I think probably both. Um, But if you look at, because people ask me this all the time, well, what what should they do, or what what have other cities done that can be, uh, that Seattle can replicate? And, you know, there really aren't any good... Examples. I don't know right. if you guys know of any, but you know, as far as I can tell, there's no like Goldilocks city no. out there that's mm-hmm. just been, you know, overwhelmed with housing demand and has figured out how to deal with that and make the city affordable. I mean, you just have overnight, almost, you know, within the last like five years, fifty thousand people making more than a hundred thousand dollar a year move into the city to work for just one company in Amazon, and then that doesn't even get into all the other companies that have shot up here so the problem is so overwhelmingly large that i do get this like depressing sense that for every step you take to try to figure this out you end up taking two steps back and you're sort of like running into this uh hurricane of of winds and it's like you know you're trying to do what you can and you know, you, you put an affordable housing bond on, on the ballot and you build, you know, half a billion dollars worth of affordable housing like Seattle is doing and 99% of the people who apply don't get housing because right. it's a drop in the bucket. Right. And it's just, the problem is so massive. It's hard to really even get a full sense for how 
massive it is because it's it's like it's unless you were to line up everybody in the city with all the different you know housing needs and really like look at it one by one it's just you know it's i'm not sure and this is like the worst thing to say but i'm not sure it technically is solvable it's that these always end so depressing. In despair. I know. In big pits of despair. I know. Yeah. Um, like, that's just like what it is, though. Like, people always reply to me on Twitter, like, you are so depressing, or like, I'm yeah. very sad now after reading your tweet. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm sorry. Yeah, but no- it is also the truth. <laughs> right. Nothing nothing other to do than to just grab a box of cereal and just start eating it by the fistful. <laughs> yeah. Right? With zero milk. Yeah. <laughs> the, the only example I ever hear, like, routinely thrown out is Tokyo. Like that's the one that everyone just kind of throws out there. Like, hey, well, Tokyo, um, right. but that's that's it. That's really it. Yeah. Yeah, or like Vienna, or yeah. like it's usually like international cities. Exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. Anything else, uh, Mike? That you think we we should have asked you, but we didn't in our arrogance and ignorance. Uh, no. Just that. Uh, people in the California listening to this and considering a move to Seattle on behalf of Seattleites everywhere, I'm contractually obligated to say that it's not nice here and it's cloudy all the time and it's miserable and you will hate it here. And let me echo that for those of our uh, listeners in the Bay Area, Sacramento, horrible. Never come here. (laughs) Yeah. So hot. Way, way too hot. hot. It is so hot. I'm sitting here sweating, and it's like 85 degrees. I kind of imagine. (laughs) All right. Mike Rosenberg of the Seattle Times, thank you so much. Any uh, any plugs? Do you want to plug anything before we let you go? No. Check out the Seattle Times if if you're so inclined. But otherwise, just uh, keep on listening. I appreciate it. And everyone really should follow Mike on Twitter. Yes. Thank you. And you guys, too. I can't imagine somebody listening to this and not following you already, but if they are. Thanks, man. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. All right.